Good afternoon, everyone. To your no doubt joy, I will be very brief. Um, my name is Mike Frank. I'm the director here, this Washington office for the Hoover Institution. Welcome. And I'm going to turn this one over to Adam White, who will let you know not only about today's event, our author, and interview Tevi, but also a little bit about what this is. This is the opening of an event and in a series to come of, uh, of a similar types of events called Closing Arguments. So Adam will give you a little bit of a branding of what he intends to do, and hopefully you can become regular attendees of future related events as well. And also, if anyone here would like to get on our mailing list, if you're not already, please um, leave your email address at, on your way out, and we'll be happy to add you, and we promise not to spam, okay? Again, welcome, and Adam, our research fellow, new addition, who is one of the great, I would, by the way, he's got, what, three cover stories in Weekly Standards going back about the last year or so that are all worth reading about Justice Scalia, 10 years in Justice uh, Rehnquist, uh, oh, Roberts, Roberts and, Thomas. and Justice Thomas. So really good. These are going to be a book someday, I think. So Adam, <laughs> it's all yours. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for coming today. We're very happy to have you here at the Johnson Center, the Hoover Institution's home in Washington, D.C., um, where we try to put on a, a number of events like this and also serve as a home for our visiting scholars from the West Coast. So if this is your first visit here, uh, we welcome you. And if this is not your first visit, then we welcome you back and hope to see you all again soon. It's my pleasure uh, to, to, to bring Tevi Troy, my friend, over to discuss his new book titled, Shall We Wake the President? Two Centuries of Disaster Management from the Oval Office. I want to go back in time just a little bit to start. Eight years ago, um, uh, or let me try, try that again. Eight years after then-Senators Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama battled for the Democratic presidential nomination, one phrase from their heated campaign still resonates, the 3 a.m. phone call, as in the phone call that a president receives in the middle of the night when crisis strikes. Now, even if that particular image is a myth, uh, or exaggerated, as, as Tevi has written in Politico, it still reflects a larger truth of the modern American presidency. Our presidents are increasingly responsible for managing national responses to catastrophes, from financial crises to hurricanes and domestic terrorism. And even before disaster strikes, we trust our presidents to do all they can to prepare and protect the nation sometimes working with Congress and the states, sometimes working exclusively in the executive branch. The presidency has changed as the nation itself has changed, technologically, culturally, and politically. And today we place immense expectations on presidents as described in the book we're here to discuss. Now we thought that this book would be an ideal subject to kick off a new discussion series here at the Hoover Institution's Johnson Center. We're calling it Opening Arguments, Conversations on American Constitutionalism, our goal is to discuss constitutionalism in the broadest sense, not just in narrow legalisms, although as a recovering lawyer, I sometimes lapse back into those, uh, but in a more fundamental and open-ended themes of separation of powers, checks and balances, Republican virtue, and democratic self-government. And so I'm pleased to introduce our speaker today, my friend Tevi Troy. Tevi is the CEO of the American Health Policy Institute, He's an adjunct fellow at the Hudson Institute and an author of a number of fascinating, enjoyable books about the presidency. In 2002, he published Intellectuals on the American Presidency, Philosophers, Jesters, or Technicians? Question mark. In 2013, he followed it up with What Jefferson Read 
Ike watched and Obama tweeted 200 years of popular culture in the White House. And if you come back, I suppose, to do a revised edition after this election, you could add to that what President Clinton or President Trump Snapchatted or, or whatever comes next. I'd have to write a whole book just about President Obama's second term pop cultural interests. <laughs> That's true. Um, so Tevi's interests reflect his years of significant service in the White House, in the, domestic, in the executive branch more generally, and on Capitol Hill, just very briefly. Uh, in the 1990s, he was domestic policy director of the House Policy Committee, and he was policy advisor to Senator Ashcroft. In the Bush administration, he served in a variety of roles deputy assistant and later acting assistant to the president for domestic policy, where he ran the Domestic Policy Council. And he was the White House's lead advisor on health care, labor, education, transportation, immigration, crime, veterans, and welfare. He also specialized in crisis management. Oh, is that all? In 2007, the Senate confirmed Tevi unanimously to serve as Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services. So as opposed to some of us who just write about whatever we feel like writing about. Tevi writes about things he actually knows about and uh, has witnessed firsthand. And so it's our pleasure uh, to be joined by Tevi. Um, Tevi, if I could just jump in with your book, maybe sort of a random anecdote to seize upon, but given that we're at the Hoover Institution, it makes a little sense. For me, the turning point of your book in tracing the history of presidential responses to catastrophe is 1927. 1927, the massive floods on the lower Mississippi River that kill thousands move millions out of their homes. And it's, you write about it in a way as a turning point in presidential disaster management. A century earlier, there's an earthquake in Missouri that the president doesn't even hear about for, say, six weeks, I think. And here in 1927, the catastrophic floods, the president and the executive branch are called upon to solve the problem. So could you tell us about that story? Absolutely. Um, 1927 is a key fulcrum in the book and in the history of presidential disaster management. First, I'd like to thank you, Adam for setting up this event. I know how hard you worked on it. And uh, Mike Frank, the director of Hoover's Washington office. And then I also have to acknowledge the presence of General Meese, who's in the audience, uh, whom I defend in my 3 AM phone call article in Politico from uh, unfair charges that he neglected to wake up President Reagan when two F-14 fighters shot down two Libyan MiGs in the early 1980s. So uh, thank you, General Meese, for coming. In terms of 1927, you're exactly right that there was a trajectory in terms of presidential involvement in disasters that accelerated post that time. In 1811, you mentioned that uh, President Madison wasn't even notified about a massive earthquake in Missouri. I also talk in the book about 1889, when there was the Johnstown flood, which killed thousands of people. And President Harrison, who was in charge at the time, was received a telegram from the people of Missouri, I'm sorry, of Pennsylvania, in Johnstown, saying that this is a big crisis and we need help. And his response to them, and you can read the book for the exact quote, I'm paraphrasing, but it was basically, this is the governor's responsibility. And they telegraphed back to Harrison saying, thank you. Could you imagine today if a president said it was the state's responsibility and there'd be protests and countersuits and all kinds of terrible things happening? But that was, he received a thank you for his, his note back to the, the, uh, the elders of Johnstown. And uh, Harrison was indeed a Republican, but this was not a partisan thing at the time. I also talked in the book about how Grover Cleveland was asked to uh, sign legislation regarding disaster assistance in Texas at one point, and Cleveland, who was a Democrat, vetoed the legislation, again, saying that it was not the president's responsibility. So there was a sense that this is out of presidential purview. There was another thing that was going on in addition to this sense of the constitutional role of the president, which is the role of communications, right? The earthquake in Missouri 
Madison didn't know about it because we didn't have instantaneous communications. I remember a few years ago, there was an earthquake in Washington. I happened to be on the West Coast at the time, and I knew within 30 seconds that there had been an earthquake in Washington, D.C., because I happened to be checking my Twitter feed at the time. So instantaneous communications brings an immediacy and an urgency to disasters that didn't exist beforehand. So given that backdrop, backdrop in 1927, we have indeed this terrible flood in Mississippi, and about 1,000 people did die from it, and a lot of people were displaced. And it was unclear what the federal role was. And in fact, President Coolidge, who had a, uh, a narrow role of what the federal government should be, a narrow vision of what the federal government's role should be, uh, initially didn't want to do much on this because he thought that it would set a bad precedent about presidential involvement in future disasters. But the fact that this was in the newspapers and that there was this new medium of radio where it was talked about, and there was a, a, a new phenomenon of comedians were out there, and Will Rogers even joked about it, uh, talking about Coolidge's dilatory approach, saying it stemmed from his, quote, hope that those needing relief will perhaps have conveniently died in the meantime. <laughs> the kind of joke you could imagine a Jay Leno or a David Letterman making in our era. And so with this pressure on him and in his cabinet, he happened to have Herbert Hoover, who was known as the master of emergencies from his time working to help people who were starving in the aftermath of World War I in Europe. So you had someone who was eager to get the government involved. You had pressure. You had this instantaneous communications. And you also had this other dynamic, which is that Coolidge found Hoover somewhat annoying. Uh, Coolidge's nickname was the Secretary of Commerce and the Undersecretary of everything else. And in fact, Coolidge at one point said, that man has given me nonstop advice for six years, all of it bad. <laughs> so you had this sense of Coolidge really wanted Hoover out of his hair. There was also the sense that Coolidge felt something needed to be done. And so he sends Coolidge down, I'm sorry, Coolidge sends Hoover down to the Mississippi area. And Coolidge and Hoover, by all accounts, did a masterful job there. And he helped organize uh, relief efforts. He helped to organize boats to rescue people. And he, he just brought his, um, his master skills at organizing things, things that he had demonstrated before in the, Euro in the European response. Uh, he brought it to bear, and he was very good at it. So uh, Hoover is really a national hero as a result of all of his good work, both in Europe in World War I and in response to the Mississippi flood. And he even rides it to the presidency in 1928. Um, what happened after that is uh, Hoover's reputation cer certainly suffered a blow. But this, uh, I argue in the book that this Mississippi flood incident really set us on a stage for more government involvement in disaster response. And then we'll talk about some of the future disasters later, but uh, following that, you have both the development of uh, the, the Great Depression and World War II, which were two uh, two massive government efforts where, where government uh, expanded a lot to, to deal with these things. And then you also had the expansion of, of instantaneous communication with not just radio but also television, which would send images of disasters which make things feel more real to the American people watching soon. So all of those factors, communications, the growth of government, and the rise of uh, the expectations of the American people all led to a country that expects more from the president in terms of disaster than we've had before. All right, now that we've sort of zeroed in on 1927 and, and that special moment in history, let's, let's step back and take a much broader view of, of, of the themes you explore in your book and just your book in general. Um, just tell us generally about your book. Why did you write it, and what are the basic points that you're trying to convey uh, in the book? So as Adam mentioned earlier, I'd written a number of books about presidential history, 
And in this particular case, I decided I wanted to get a little more involved in policy. Adam noted that I have a, a long history in working in policy in Congress and in the, in the Bush administration. And so I, I wanted to write a more policy-oriented book, uh, talking to certain friends and advisors, including a friend named um, Alan Rechshoffen, said that I should write something about disasters, because I did a lot of work on disasters. So that, that got me thinking about disasters. But then the other thought was that I married disasters with my knowledge of presidential history. And that happy marriage led to uh, this concept of presidents and disasters. So that, that's what brought it about. But as I started to research the topic, I saw that this whole idea that the president get involved was not something that went from the earliest days of our republic. And really, the book is a story of the growth of government and the development of a government that thinks that it can solve these kinds of crises. And you now have a situation where whatever happens, uh, the government is supposed to get involved. In fact, I have that quote in the book from President Bush that his vision of government, and I think this is not a conservative vision of government, but is that when someone hurts, government has to move. That's probably not a popular sentiment here at the Hoover Institution. It's not a popular sentiment in the Troy House either, but, uh, but, but there, there was definitely that, that sense that had, had emerged, and so I wanted to talk about those issues. Well, so you, you structure the book in a pretty interesting way. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Uh, there's two basic sections. I mean, the foreword written by Senator Lieberman, which is pretty impressive. But then your narrative breaks catastrophes down into two categories, acts of God and acts of man. And in acts of God, you have pandemics, food and water crises, uh, weather catastrophes, and economic collapse. It's interesting that that's an acts of God rather than acts of man. But, but you, you, you break down and walk through those acts of God, and then the next section is acts of man, terrorist attacks, bioterrorism, the loss of the power grid, um, and then increasingly prominent today, civil unrest. So how did, you, how did you arrive upon that structure for the book rather than, say, chronologically or, or any other way you would have gone about it? It's a really good question, uh, and I thought a lot about this. I, I think the way I started was, Let's look at different types of disasters. And there are some disasters that I began to explore that didn't really make it into the book because they didn't quite fit the model. Can you name uh, one? Uh, so I, I, um, I, I worked on something on public health, public health emergencies. I wasn't sure if that was an um, a, a act of man or act of God and, and how to handle it. But I did. Um, I will be working on that and may, it may appear in another form in the future that, uh, that we'll be talking about later. But so uh, as a writer, my, my attitude is never let anything go to waste. But uh, uh, so I looked at these different types of disasters and uh, I, I had a couple of readers on the book, some of whom happened to be in the audience, including uh, Jonathan Bernitsky, my brother Dan Troy, and another brother of mine, Gil Troy, read the book. And the, from conversations with those readers, uh, it emerged that there really were, were two thematic thing, uh, sets of types of disasters and that included the acts of God and acts of man, and I thought it was a good way to structure the book. So uh, another advice to uh, budding writers, in addition to never waste a thing, always have someone smart look at your work and, uh, and they, they'll, they'll see things that you didn't think of. Yeah. Uh, now, and we'll get into this some as we get into this, the specific topics, but is there any broad lesson you can draw from presidents handling acts of God versus acts of man? Is there sort of a big picture difference in yes, how they go about those? Uh, so, yes, and this really gets to your question about why economics is in the act of God and not act of man. Yeah. Uh, when act of man, you often have a perpetrator, uh, someone that caused the thing. And so, for the most part, when you're in government and we have a, a motto, which is the all hazards approach, you try and build disaster response systems that can deal with multiple types of disasters. I'll give you a good example of this. 
in the 2000s, I worked in the Bush White House on the development of an avian flu plan. Now, avian flu did not break out during the Bush administration, but during the Obama administration, there was a swine flu outbreak. It happened in early 2009, and it happened before a single senior official at HHS was confirmed by, by the Senate for the Obama administration. So uh, there was nobody kind of in charge from a political perspective. But what the HHS officials did do was they busted out that swine flu plan, uh, that avian flu plan that we had developed and used it for swine flu and very effectively. And in fact, um, I was quite proud of this fact that in that year of 2009, when the swine flu emerged, fewer people died from the flu in that year than in an average flu year. So the, the, uh, the swine happened to be less virulent than anticipated, but also the, the response and the use of uh, certain countermeasures and the development of a quick development of a vaccine all helped to uh, stave off a, a worse epidemic or, or even the potential of a, a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So uh, the all-hazards approach is essential to having government be resilient to respond to different types of crises, even though you can't anticipate the type of crisis it might be. But in terms of, let me just finish on this, this last point, uh, the difference between man-made and acts of God is it's very similar in terms of you prepare for disaster and response. But in acts of man, you need to have intelligence to try and prevent it, and you also need to have a law enforcement angle in terms of catching the people responsible. Okay, so you brought up the all-hazards approach. That was something that jumped out at me at the book. Um, you introduced it early on, and, and it's, it's, you only sort of, you get into it a little bit in the book, but I'd be very interested in hearing more about it. Is this a concept that the Bush administration created for itself or a, 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 a term that it coined, or is this something that goes back deeper into executive branch history? Yeah, I've not looked into the etymology of the phrase. I know it was something we did use in the Bush administration, yeah. and there was a lot more emphasis put on disaster preparedness and disaster management in the Bush administration, especially in the wake of 9-11. Uh, it's not like I got the sense that it was developed by uh, Dan Bartlett or Ari Fleischer or one of the communications gurus, but it really came from the, uh, the crisis management experts at HHS, the people particularly at, um, uh, at, the, at the, um, the, the Office of Preparedness and Response, uh, the ASPERS office at HHS, and also the people at CDC, uh, the Centers for Disease Control, those folks I worked with. So I can't exactly tell you about the coinage per se, but it's something that was, that was in wide use during the Bush administration. Well, it's just something that's been on my mind recently. I mean, I'm, I'm doing some work right now on financial regulation and crises. And in recent years, there's been talk of a thing called black swan catastrophes, right? These, these unforeseen and unforeseeable uh, 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 events. Um, actually, uh, our, our, our research fellow, um, uh, Russ Roberts, who's here with us today, has interviewed the author of the book, The Black Swan. You've interviewed Nassim Taleb a number of times in great interviews which I highly recommend, but Nassim coined this phrase and others have seized upon it in the context of financial catastrophes or 9-11 or, or whatever, these unforeseen and unforeseeable catastrophes. And then the question is, how do you go about pre preparing yourself or preparing against uh, the things that you can't predict in the first place? I mean, is this something, since you worked on crisis management at the White House, is this the broader concept? Is that something you had to chew on while you were in the White House or is this just something you sort of took a case at a time? It's absolutely the case that whoever our next president is, and I know a lot of people are unhappy with the choices, myself included, whoever the next president is, is going to have to deal with some kind of crisis. I can't tell you what that crisis is going to be, but they're going to have to deal with crisis. And so it behooves them and it behooves us to think about these things in advance and prepare for it. Uh, I think drilling is very important in terms of having disaster preparedness tests or scenarios. Uh, I know we did a couple 
in the Bush administration where we realized that there were just some things we weren't prepared for. So I, I, I remember there was one uh, that talked about an outbreak of a particular flu strain that we didn't anticipate along at the same time that a dirty bomb goes off or something like that. Uh, and one thing that we didn't anticipate that the scenario presented us with was the avalanche of what are called the worried well showing up at hospitals. These are people who are not sick, who were not hit by either the flu or the, the bomb, but feel that they are. You know, it's the uh, old phenomenon of when you're in medical school, you think you have the symptoms of every disease. So people would show up at emergency rooms in this scenario, and the emergency rooms just weren't equipped to handle it. So I, I think preparing for those things is, is extremely important. And one kind of rule of thumb that I've developed in terms of disaster response is if the federal officials show up on scene and start handing their cards to the other federal officials to introduce themselves, you've already failed. <laughs> you need to know each other in advance. You need to have worked with each other, know each other's capabilities, know each other's zones of responsibilities. And I think preparation and doing these kinds of drills is the only way to do it. It reminds me of, um, I, think, I think a line from the founder of your think tank, Herman Kahn, founder of the Hudson Institute. Didn't he have a line about thinking about the unthinkable? <laughs> Yep. That was the, his catchphrase. Right, that was about the possibility of not only nuclear war taking place, but something happening after nuclear war. It's kind of post-thermonuclear war. There's a, a belief that nuclear war would lead to mad, mutually assured destruction. But he said, well, what if it doesn't? What if some of us are alive and some of the Soviets are alive? How do we handle that? Yeah. So, um, so Khan's thinking uh, uh, in my years at Hudson Institute was certainly instrumental. In, it. in fact, I told one story in the book that I was at Hudson Institute in the 1990s in the Indianapolis office. And we were getting a briefing from a guy named Gary Geipel, who was a senior uh, researcher there. And he was asked in a, a briefing, what are the odds of some kind of enormous terrorist attack costing thousands of lives taking place in the United States over the next decade? And this is before 9-11, and, and Geipel said 100%. And that really struck me, and obviously it did happen. So, uh, uh, so, so yeah, yeah, there are people who think about these things, and I think it's, it's, it's worth it to have people like that. They may not be the most fun at cocktail parties, but they're definitely good to have around. Uh, well, after everybody's been drinking right. for a while, maybe they are the most fun. Um, okay, so a couple of figures you've mentioned already, uh, President Hoover and President Bush. They're both, to me, very interesting um, because they reflect both the highs and lows of crisis management. I mean, you have three appendices at the end of your book, and the third one is the five best and worst presidents at dealing with disaster. And the five, on the five best, number three is George W. Bush and his handling of the 9-11 terrorist attack. And you flip to the next page, five worst, number four is George W. Bush and Hurricane Katrina. Right? Or uh, President Hoover in the same way uh, before he was president, was famous for disaster relief in Europe and in the lower Mississippi, and then up comes the Great Depression, and he winds up number two on the list of five worst presidents for disaster relief. And so I'm curious, how can the same president do so well in one catastrophe and then years later do so badly, and what lessons can we draw from that? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. And um, Having worked in the Bush administration, I obviously struggled with the way to handle President Bush because uh, obviously I worked for the administration. To some degree, I do defend it. Uh, but also, you can't ignore the fact that the Katrina response is something that really damaged the Bush uh, presidency. 
Um, and so I, I did come up with this concept of uh, he was very good at his response to 9-11, especially the famous moment on the truck. We were talking about this earlier that um, David Frum called him the right man. Um, and when he stood on that fire truck and said, um, I can hear you and soon the whole world will hear you, that was a moment that really galvanized America, united America, and it was something that the, the country needed at the time. Obviously, the Katrina response was, was lacking on multiple levels, but including at the presidential level. And so... Uh, you can have these situations where you're very good at one thing or very good at one time and then later uh, you don't do as well. In fact, a very, very interesting story I tell in the book that I didn't even realize having worked in the Bush administration was uh, a lot of President Bush's thinking about weatherborne disasters stemmed from his father's experience in dealing with Hurricane Andrew in 1992. Yeah. And Hurricane Andrew's response was uh, not, not a good one. And there was a woman, this was before the Internet, and we had the whole concept of, of clips going viral, but this was this clip went the equivalent of viral in this pre-internet era where a woman uh, stood up and she said, where's the cavalry? Where the hell is the cavalry at long last? And so this woman who was part of the Dade County Emergency Response Team uh, showed up on newscasts all across America and there was just this sense that the Bush administration had failed in its response in Hurricane Andrew. President George W. Bush takes this response to heart and for the first term of his administration, he gets a reputation as being very good at responding to weather-borne disasters. He puts a lot of time into it. He puts effort into it. He makes sure that the, uh, the, the FEMA designations happen on time, the dollars go where they need to go. And in fact, there are political <coughs> reporters who write about Bush's excellent skills at weather-borne responses, weather disaster responses, and they do it in a somewhat cynical way, saying, well, he must have learned the, the lessons from his father's failure at Andrew, uh, a lesson that may have cost uh, Bush Florida in 1992 in the election against Bill Clinton. And obviously he lost that election. And remember, um, George H.W. Bush was someone who had 88% approval ratings going into the 92 election and then, then obviously lost that, that difficult election and that the Andrew response was seen as part of it. Mm -hmm. So here you have George W. Bush learns the painful lessons from his father, spends a lot of time on weatherborne disasters, gets credit for it, but kind of in a begrudging way, he's only doing it because of the political necessity of doing it. And then Katrina happens and it, it really damages his reputation. So, so this kind of thing can turn. Um, in terms of Hoover, uh, I do talk about how successful he was in 1927. I talk about how he was a national hero. But then the Great Depression comes, and uh, you, you didn't mention that I put Franklin Delano Roosevelt on the list of best presidents in terms of dealing with disaster. And one of the ways he was so successful is that he tagged Hoover with the complete responsibility for the Depression. And in fact, in that transition period, when Hoover was asking, and after the 1932 uh, election, asking for bipartisan assistance, Roosevelt wouldn't even deal with Hoover and really hung Hoover out to dry in that period. And there was a clear sense that Roosevelt was saying, Hoover, this is your problem, and to the extent that we have success, that's going to be my success. And so Roosevelt's communication skills were masterful in helping put Hoover in a bad spot, but Hoover really didn't help himself either, especially with um, uh, his poor communication skills in the Depression, his, uh, his false predictions that we were over it and that things were going to get better, and, um, and his, his general... Uh, the sense that I think is inaccurate if you look at the history that he wasn't doing anything. Well, in the fact, he was doing things that were similar to what Roosevelt would do in terms of the creation of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, but he, he got no credit from it from history or from the American people. And so, uh, in many ways, his disaster skills were good, but his communication skills were poor. 
Right. So, so in, in presidential management of disaster response, there's maybe this is an artificial distinction, but there's the there's the, the substantive things the president does, just in terms of make sure the money gets the right way, the people are doing the right things. But then there is this rhetorical side of, of things. I mean, is that a fair distinction? Um, Absolutely. The communications is essential. And I mentioned President Bush a, a few moments earlier, and we all know that uh, the worst moment of the Katrina response was the flyover, where he's flying over Katrina and he doesn't stop in the affected area. And there's good reasons for presidents not to stop in affected areas because it taxes the resources of the first responders who have to spend time building a motorcade and protecting the president rather than dealing with the, the people who are affected by the crisis. So there's good reasons for not stopping. But the flyover was just such a bad image and something that really all presidents should learn the, the problems of the flyover. And in fact, in the book, I have a picture of Lyndon B. Johnson flying over uh, riot-torn areas of Washington after the 1968 post-Martin Luther King riots, looking down at the devastation as impotently as Bush did look down over Katrina. And so sometimes it's, it's a good move to go to a disaster area. Sometimes it's a good move not to go to a disaster area, but it's never a good idea to do a flyover. <laughs> You know, it's just hearing you tell that story. It reminds me. We've just observed the 15th anniversary of 9/11, and one of the one of the, one of the controversies at the time was President Bush's decision not to fly immediately back to Washington. Right? I think last weekend or the weekend before, Politico had this long essay, an oral history of 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 the President Bush uh, in Air Force One. Now, in hindsight, you know, the passage of time. The Bush administration and its supporters have done a good job of sort of recasting that in history, or that's not fair, of, of, of explaining why they did it and sort of justifying it. They seem to have won the public over, but you're right. On Katrina, the president's sort of removed from the situation is, has, has really stuck with them. Maybe, like you said, maybe the key is just either go there or don't go there, but just don't go within arm's, arm's reach and then keep moving on. Yeah. I think it's pretty clear that the Bush administration was searching initially and had some missteps in, in the immediate 9-11 response. Uh, there, there was the, the first Oval Office address, which was so bad that the president's own speechwriters jokingly called it the awful office address. Um, and, and then there was this question of where he should go on that, that first day, and that, that was an issue. But there was also a sense that we shouldn't go off half-cocked. And in fact, Ari Fleischer uh, very smartly wrote a note to President Bush when he was going to reporters, and he held the note in such a way that Bush could see it and the reporters couldn't, and it said in big letters, don't say anything yet, because we don't know what's going on, and you shouldn't say things without full knowledge of the situation. That's interesting. Well, okay, the image uh, from Hurricane Andrew of the woman saying, where's the cavalry coming? And that reflects this, this historical change in evolution we talked about at the very beginning, that, that at the beginning of our country and going on for a century, we didn't expect the federal government to intervene directly in these things, and now we do. So there's a big federalism story in this, right? And can we talk about that a little bit, the, 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 the shifting of, 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 of power from the, federal, from the states to the federal government with, response, with respect to disaster uh, response? Yeah, absolutely. There, there's initially the, uh, the federalist argument was winning, right, in 1889 when Harrison says that this is the governor's responsibility and should, should the governor ask me for something, I will... I will do my best to give it to you, but this is really the government's role, the, the state government's role. And then by 1927, you have the Secretary of Commerce going, and then in 1969, uh, Nixon sends Vice President Spiro Agnew 
during Hurricane Camille to report back on what's going on. So the, even in 1969, when you had a much bigger federal government and you had airplane travel, you didn't necessarily have the president flying down to a disaster area, but he did send his, his vice president to re report back. And I tell an interesting story in the book that out of that report back from Spiro Agnew, he told Nixon that one of the problems was that the people in affected areas b before a hurricane couldn't tell the severity of an incoming hurricane. They didn't know whether this hurricane was a big one or a small one. And so the thought and the direction that Nixon gave to the bureaucracy was, can we develop some kind of me measurement for hurricanes? And this is what led to the categorization system, the category one through five ca uh, hurricanes that we now have today. It came out of that Agnew report back to Nixon, Nixon's report and request back to the bureaucracy. Now, as power went from the federal or the states to the federal government, in your research, did you find that the, the states sort of gave that power to the federal government, sort of willing, that responsibility willingly, or is this something that the federal government sort of pulled away from the states? Yeah, look, this is a long history of federalism that, uh, that's not just related to disaster areas, but yeah. the, the federal government uh, used a combination of its teeth and its dollars, you know, the carrot and stick approach in terms of taking more and more power and more and more responsibility. And as the states became more dependent on federal dollars, the federal, um, the federal government felt like it could stretch its muscles and assert its uh, prerogatives more and more. And there's just one story that I know, I know you, you, you and oh, I please, discussed please. a little bit. Uh, in this 1969 uh, Hurricane Camille, the Department of HEW, Health, Education, and Welfare, which was the precursor to both HHS and uh, the Department of Education, but HEW wants to precondition disaster relief funds on desegregation efforts in Mississippi, which you could imagine in 1969 was a somewhat controversial move. And the, the, there's a sense of the federal dollars are coming, so you need to follow the federal government's directives on desegregation. Well, this probably would um, have gone through today in, in our era, but at the time, John Stennis was a very powerful Mississippi senator who had a senior role on the Appropriations Committee, and he said, if you do that, if you tie disaster funding to school desegregation efforts, then I'm not going to give you the missile funding that you want, President Nixon. And so the Nixon administration pulled back. Mm -hmm. But even though this early foray into, I guess, a very anti-federalist approach of the federal government directing states what to do with money that is sent, uh, even though that anti early foray failed, uh, subsequent forays, I think, uh, have been more successful. And now there's an expectation: if the federal government brings dollars, then they're going to uh, then they're going to set the rules. I and mean, No Child Left Behind, for example, is yeah. a classic example of that. This education policy says we spend a lot of money on the states. The states need to live by certain national standards in terms of what what the school performances should look like. Well, and we see this right now, right in the debate over the Zika virus, funding for the Zika virus, and debate erupts over uh, proposals. And I'm I haven't followed that closely. Pro proposals either to insert funding for Planned Parenthood or to take it away. I'm not sure where, where, where the debate on that is, but we see that today where, where these domestic, long-standing domestic disputes wind up getting involved in, in, in the disaster relief. And that was something that the sort of the mid-20th century presidents and early 20th century presidents were worried about, right? It was one of the reasons why they wanted to avoid getting the federal government into these in the first place, is that it would end up tying disasters to these broader d debates. Is that right? Well, I mean, that, that was certainly a Coolidge concern. I think you could see it in, in both Harrison and Grover Cleveland's r responses. So, yeah, there, there's a sense the more federal government gets involved, the um, I, I don't think they saw the degree of the partisanship, but yeah. the, that the, the, rise in the rise in expectations that the federal government 
would be assumed to be responsible for everything. And one of the arguments in my book is that it's clear we have a federal government that does a lot of things, but maybe the federal government shouldn't be involved in every type of disaster. And the president should think about where presidents can and should get involved in such a way that they can help improve the situation, and maybe areas where they should step back. Maybe weather uh, disasters are, are not really a, a prime concern of presidents, but something like preparing the nation for terrorism or bioterror is really something that only presidents can do. So for example, in bioterrorism, response and, and preparation, one of our key tools is the strategic national stockpile, which stockpiles all kinds of countermeasures in case of some kind of bioterror incident, but also in case of some kind of uh, natural outbreak. Now, I just don't think it's realistic for Idaho to develop its own stockpile and to build the, um, uh, build the countermeasures in that stockpile. There some states do stockpile but it's based on federal government recommendations and drugs that the federal government or countermeasures that the federal government has either encouraged or funded to some degree. And so I, I think presidential involvement should be carefully calibrated to areas where the president can bring the most leverage and maybe not some areas where it's not necessarily the government's role. Okay, and we'll have uh, microphones in the audience shortly, so start thinking of questions, and I'll just ask a few more while, while we're waiting. But um, uh, just to pick up on what you just said about there is, maybe it's time for the federal government to cede back responsibility for some types of disasters. I mean, even if that's good policy, do you think it's possible? Because as you've said, you know, one of the themes of the book is that we're at this moment now precisely because of technological change and cultural change that's focused responsibility on the president. Do you think we could ever take it away? I think we could take it away. I think it's unrealistic in the short term. Yeah. I think a president who goes into office, and, and I'm pretty clear about this in the book, who goes into office, uh, let's say January of 2017, and says, you know what, if there's a big hurricane in your state, I'm not going to do anything about it. I mean, <laughs> that's not a wise move. I think it has to take place over time, and a president needs to use the bully pulpit to start making the case for why presidents should be involved in certain things and, and not other things. So, so I, I think it's a, a development that we need to think about, but I, I don't think it's an immediate thing you can just stumble into. But presidents also might find it advantageous to reach out and grab Grab, you know, take responsibility for crises, right? The, the famous statement from the Chief of Staff, Rahm Emanuel, never let a crisis go to waste, right? The, the, in crises, there's opportunity for government to the executive branch to step in and, and promote policies that might not otherwise have gotten traction, right? Yeah, and, and that does worry me in this whole sense that, uh, well, because there's a crisis, we can expand the federal government in a way that we couldn't have done it otherwise. Uh, another thing that worries me, and this is related to what you talked about Zika, is the partisan nature of certain types of disaster questions these days. I wrote an article for Politico a few years ago called Enter the Neutral Zone when it comes to disaster response, especially with respect to disease board, because uh, disease board response, because with, during the, the swine flu situation, you had people on the right, like Glenn Beck, saying, well, I won't do anything that the Obama Department of Homeland Security tells me to do. And then you had people on the left, like Bill Maher, saying, well, only idiots would stick a live flu virus in their arms, which is not exactly what a flu vaccine is. Uh, so uh, if you have this sense that if a president from the other party tells me what to do in the case of a disaster, I'm not going to listen because they're from the other party, I think that's a very dangerous place to be in and a place I would like to avoid. Now, one way to alleviate that problem would be for presidents to reach out at least to Congress, right? Instead of focusing disaster relief in the executive branch, it would be to reach out, work across, uh, not just across party lines, but across the, the lines of the branches of government. Um, on the other hand, you know, Alexander Hamilton famously wrote that it was energy in the executive 
that was particularly important for the steady administration of law. So there's this tension between a president reaching out to Congress and seeking sort of interbranch cooperation, like Lincoln famously reaching out and trying to get Congress to to ratify what he had been doing in the earlier Civil War. But on the other hand, when the president reaches out to Congress, uh, he might it might just bog the whole process down or interject other problems into the process, right? Look, we have a separation of powers. You know this better than I do from your uh, brilliant legal writings, that there are certain things the president can do and that certain Congress do. And when, when it comes to disasters, Congress appropriates funds. Congress gets funds and says, okay, we're going to spend this much money on this type of disaster. And the president deploys resources. That's the, that's the executive. So I, I think the roles are pretty clearly laid out. I'd like to see bipartisan cooperation when it comes to these sorts of issues. Uh, but but I, I don't think we need some kind of great new rethinking of what each branch's responsibilities are in these areas. Now, on the bright side, we are, we're joined by, by Kevin Kosar of R Street, whose current project is called Making Congress Great Again. So, Kevin, once you once you succeed in making Congress great again, well, uh, that'll help on the disaster and, and side. And Kevin is cited in my book a number of times. He's written some great stuff That's about right. disasters. That's right. Okay, so of the six categories of disasters that you talk about, what are they again? Uh, weather disasters, economic catastrophe, pandemics, food and water crises, uh, and then on acts of man, terror attacks, bioterror attacks, power grid, civil unrest. Of all of those, which do you think is the mo has been the most difficult for presidents to sort of get their arms around and figure out a way to, to handle? Yeah, it's a good question. There are actually eight categories. Uh, the, the real question is what, uh, where can presidents have an influence? So with something like a, um, a water disaster, uh, the, the idea of this chapter is that we in America are blessed to have lots of uh, available food, available water, and it's something that we count on and rely on. I, I cite uh, the historian uh, uh, David Potter with his book, People of Plenty, that, that expresses this concept that America is blessed with uh, plentiful food. Now, obviously, if you're impoverished, you, can't, you, you may not be able to buy food. We have food stamps and programs like that to deal with it. But the question of there being food to get is something that is not a problem in America. I mean, food is there. Plus, it's different from most of human history when you worried about where your next meal was coming from. We don't really have that same type of concern today. But if that were to go away, that would really reshape our conception of what our society is. And so I talk a little bit about the water problems in West Virginia a few years ago when there was a chemical leak, or the water problems in Flint, Michigan, where the water was suddenly undrinkable. Uh, and it's unclear what a president can do in those type of circumstances. We haven't had a massive famine or massive nationwide drought. I you talk about the California drought a little bit. But if that kind of thing happens, an, an act of God that really uh, strained our resources. We don't have um, uh, massive food stores like uh, Joseph had for the ancient Egyptians after the, uh, the, the famine. Uh, so, so I'm not sure what a president can do in that circumstance. I think that would really tax, uh, tax a nation. You know, one of the great Supreme Court separation of powers cases of the 20th century, it didn't have to do with the shortage of food or anything like, like, like that, but it had to do with the shortage of steel, right? When the, the unions were going to go on strike in the Korean War and create a shortage of steel in the middle of the war effort, you had President Truman really straining to find a way to sort of force the issue and bring that commodity back onto the market. Um, in fact, and the Supreme Court ultimately found that he overreached his his powers. I can't even imagine what he, what a president would do on a food or water crisis. Well, let's let's open up to questions now. I'll interject some more along the way. But does anybody have any questions for for Tevi? Right here in front. Oh, hold on. There's a microphone coming. 
not not to take away from the fact that this has been a fantastic discussion, but amazingly, we've had this entire discussion. I don't think the word FEMA has been used explicitly. <laughs> yeah. um, and the history of that is is sort of a sort of fascinating microcosm. I'm very interested to see what Tevi says about it. You know, FEMA started out as a fairly Spartan agency focused on things like nuclear war, and within you know 15 years, uh, ironically enough, Bush lost his job because of his failed disaster relief response. Clinton took over and immediately turned FEMA into this agency for pork and patronage. To all of a sudden, he defined disasters down where it was being headed by a former Arkansas state trooper, and they were paying for snow, pl snow plows in Buffalo as if that were some sort of natural disaster. Um, and then, of course, this came back to haunt George W. Bush because the character of the agency had been sufficiently changed, and he hadn't done much in the way of actually dealing with the problems in FEMA. So my question is, is FEMA particularly seems to be the thing for addressing disasters that would be most directly under the purview of the president. Um, what would be the strategy for reform there? Um, and, uh, um, you know, how do we get away from it being, you know, uh, the, you know, the source of all these manner of ridiculous things to everything to, you know, from, like I said, the snowplows to, ironically enough, uh, I believe Bush used FEMA money to pay for uh, Obama's inauguration. Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Mark. It's, it's an interesting question. Uh, FEMA, founded um, by Carter around 1979, um, has clearly had some issues with it, its, its mission and its purview. Uh, but I've also found, related to that, that disaster declarations are what get FEMA going. And I found this odd and disturbing increase in the number of disaster declarations over time. So Bill Clinton, in his first uh, term, I have the exact numbers in the book, but I, I think he had 56... Um, in his first year, 56 disaster declarations, and by the time he was running for re-election in 96, he had a, over 150 disaster declarations. And we just don't have that many more disasters. And I've seen this steady rise in the number of disaster declarations over time, and I wonder and fear that there might be a political element to it. I also saw a uh, discomforting spike in the number of disaster declarations in presidential election years. So to the extent that we can get away from politics and FEMA and maybe have some way of having a, um, a neutral assessment of where, where the disaster is. I think that would be a good thing. I think the other thing is to, um, uh, to create strategies based on expecting local response and not really counting on FEMA in the short term or on the federal government in the short term. So for example, uh, I thought there was a really interesting contrast between the Katrina problems of 2005 and how Louisiana handled the Baton Rouge flooding, which was pretty significant uh, just a few weeks ago. And there was a real sense that the localities were much better at responding, at recognizing the federal government wasn't going to be there immediately to bail them out. Uh, the Cajun Navy was a, sen uh, a series of um, ad hoc boats that would go around and rescue people. Uh, and so I, I think localities need to understand that in the short term, FEMA or the federal government are not going to come rescue you, and that you need to have uh, individual, community, and state and local strategies for dealing with your uh, with these kinds of problems in the short term. But then in the long term, FEMA might come down with resources. They bring water bottles to West Virginia. I was talking about earlier with the uh, the water crisis, or they bring um, or they bring relief checks later when uh, when when um, disaster funding is released. But um, this comes to a, a part part of the book that you and I haven't yet talked about. It was which is I also give in addition to talking about the presidency, I give individual strategies for how you as an individual should prepare yourselves and your families for these kinds of crises, recognizing that in the short term, you can't count on the federal government coming to help you if there's some kind of riot in your area. The federal government's not going to be there immediately. Now, maybe the National Guard will come 
and, and tamp it down after a little while. But in the immediate response to a crisis, you need to have strategies for yourself and your own family. And uh, on the National Guard, I do have this one great story in the book that I, I need to share, that um, there were so many race riots uh, in the 1960s that when Pat Moynihan entered the Nixon White House as a, a, an aide uh, in the Nixon administration, he got from the Johnson aides a pad, a mimeographed pad, they had mimeographs back then, of um, how to call out the National Guard in case of race riots. Because it was happening so frequently, and all he had to do was fill out the name of the city and get the president's signature, and then they would get the National Guard to come to that city. Because every summer of the Johnson administration, there, there had been race riots. Uh, but in the immediate response, you, you, you are on your own, and so you need to think about strategies. And so I list what you can do in each, type, each of these types of disasters to prepare yourself and your family. Yeah, I have to say, um, maybe the best in, in the book, the best reflection of your 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 two lives as as a government official, a policymaker, and also as a scholar is right. You trace the history of these things, then you have a chapter called "How to Prepare for Acts of Man," where you go sort of item catastrophe by catastrophe with right. practical advice, and then at the end, and also you, acts of man. I have a chapter on each. Exactly, exactly. Have for both, and then at the end. You have an appendix on presidential lessons learned, which is nine sort of bullet pointed lessons. And then appendix two is a checklist on when should presidents get involved. So hopefully they'll just scatter a few books of these loosely around the West Wing. And when disaster strikes, they can just go to the checklist. And, yeah, I was and thinking that there. the checklists are very helpful for uh, both uh, government officials who don't have time to read the book or uh, radio producers in preparing questions. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, think tank scholars. Right, right, yeah. um, sure, right here in front. Oh, wait for the microphone, please. Thank you. Uh, okay, Alf Felsenberg, is this on? It is. Yeah, uh, well, one thing about Buffalo, if you're Bill Clinton coming in and Tim Russert's in Buffalo and you want good meet the press, Russert's in Buffalo, of course it's a disaster. Um, there is one example, going back to the federalism question. Yeah. Uh, you do have one uh, modern president who went against the grain and in many, many things his name was Ronald Reagan. And, of course, I always thought it was interesting that he... He decided to display Calvin Coolidge in the cabinet room as a role model. So we had this thing called Tylenol. Uh, and uh, nobody's yelling for the cavalry, but uh, there was absolutely hysteria when you turn the, the, the television on every night. Tylenol poisonings, and, to be clear. And uh, maybe General Meese wants to add to this. And he found his Herbert Hoover in the private sector. Jim Burke was a very Renaissance chairman of J&J. &J. He set up a command and control center. He came out with announcements every day and what they were doing, how much it was costing the company to, to destroy uh, bottles after bottles of perfectly good Tylenol. Uh, and uh, like, like Giuliani did during 9-11, he was out there and Re Reagan just built him up. Uh, had a dinner for him at the White House. Uh, very much like uh, our friend Benjamin Harrison, he brings in Clara Barton and uh, we're going to have a fundraiser for the Red Cross of the Willard. We're not spending our money, but uh, so there isn't a good, and what, I, what struck me in your example of that, uh, no calls for any new agencies. Reagan's veto is the creation of the drug czar. As you point out, and he leaves that for a bush. Uh, I remind me of Milton Friedman. You know, whenever something happens, does just don't stand there, set up an agency. So first, President Bush, uh, the younger, uh, doesn't want a new cabinet department. Remember, he brings in Governor Ridge, and he's going to be. I thought for a while the Herbert Hoover is going to be dealing with terrorism. Next thing we know, uh, the president changes his mind. We get a whole new department. Fifteen years later, they don't have a place to house him. Uh, and there's no sense of camaraderie in the new department. Maybe Friedman was right, maybe Coolidge was right, and maybe Reagan was right. Any thoughts? 
Well, let me just say, you have a very good, nice write-up of the Tylenol story in the book. Yeah, so yeah. The best let me, chapters, yeah. really. Thank you. Uh, let, let me quickly tell the, the, the Reagan story, although I, <laughs> I defer to General Meese if he wants to correct me on anything. But, uh, but there, there were these terrible Tylenol poisonings during the Reagan administration in the 1980s in Chicago. And uh, some person, we still don't know who it is, poisoned a series of bottles of Tylenol in the Chicago area. Seven people died, and, and there were some really heartbreaking stories, including there were two people who were at the home of one of their relatives who had died who were very upset and took Tylenol to deal with their discomfort, and they ended up dying as well. So it was really just a horrible, horrible story. It went everywhere. People were terrified of taking Tylenol or any over-the-counter medication. And Ronald Reagan allowed the, the head of J&J, &J, of Johnson & Johnson, really to take charge of the situation. They got rid of all the Tylenol on the shelves. They, the recall was very expensive. They built new packaging, and now you have childproof containers in the seal. When, when you get something, uh, when you get a new pharmaceutical product, you know that it's, it's sealed and that nobody could have easily put the syringe in like this happened in, in that situation. Um, he later did call um, Burke to the White House and called him out for what a good job he did. Um, and you're right, he did initially veto the legislation, making it uh, a, cr a federal crime to do that tampering. But he eventually did sign it, um, again, using the presidential role as someone who can veto or sign legislation. He shaped the legislation the, the way he wanted it to be. Right, they took out, I do make that point in the book, that he took out this concept of the drug czar. His, pre, his uh, successor, George H.W. Bush, did create the drug czar for our, our friend William Bennett and uh, um, did, did a good job in, in the role. But, uh, but Reagan didn't think that was an appropriate position. And so I, I don't think the only way to be a good disaster responder is to create new agencies and to uh, bring the, the resources of the federal government to bear. And in this, I just really need to do, give this great quote from the, the New York Times in 1927 talking about Hoover's response in the Mississippi flood. Uh, it talks about Hoover's general approach of um, going down there and uh, building little rescue efforts. But he, um, the New York Times editorial even said, fortunately, there are still some things that can be done without the wisdom of Congress and the all-fathering federal government. I love this idea of the, the New York Times taking a, a shot in overly large and paternalistic federal government. <laughs> the last time they said something nice about a, a Republican response to a disaster, perhaps. So, uh, so it, it's a great question, Al, and, uh, I, and and I agree. It's not just the government, who, the the president who does the most with federal resources and gets the federal government the most involved, who is the best, and that's why I intentionally put Reagan on that list. Sure. Any uh, right here, uh, the third row. Hey, Debbie, Juliet Eilfren <coughs> with the Washington Post. I wanted to get Thank your you. perspective on the Zika uh, impasse that we have right now where you have Senate Democrats blocking a bill because Republicans are borrowing the money from going to Planned Parenthood. And as well as there's kind of, some people might argue whether it's a crisis, which is you know, the question of funding for the opioid epidemic, but obviously a public health question where the federal government is also facing questions of how to intervene. When you look particularly at the Zika crisis, I'm interested, you know, how, what do you think that says about where we are with Congress and what, how essentially the executive branch and the legislative branch deal with emergencies, emergencies that are not the same as a hurricane, but clearly are things where there's a call for federal intervention. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Juliet, for the question. I I'm disturbed by the whole Zika situation, and I think there's plenty of blame to go around on both sides in this. Um, I think the Obama administration's initial request was a bit heavy-handed, where they said that this is the amount of money 
we're demanding and it's got to be this way and they didn't have a lot of transparency about how the money was going to be spent and uh, they didn't even guarantee that the money would only be spent for Zika in which the Republicans were taken aback and then the House came forward with a 600 I guess that was 1.9 billion and the House came back with a 600 million dollar package which they knew the administration would find inadequate and it was pretty clear that there was a compromise in the Senate that was a bipartisan compromise of 1.1 billion dollars that I uh, clearly could have gotten behind, or I, you know, I, I think is, is about the right amount, um, and, and they couldn't come, couldn't come together on this. And I think in the end, that is where they're going to be, $1.1 billion without riders. But it is unfortunate that they went through this, but, uh, both the, the administration's initial request, but then also the, this question about uh, Planned Parenthood. And, and the reason, uh, someone even as um, uh, legally savvy as Adam said, it was a little unclear about the Planned Parenthood thing, is because the legislation doesn't mention Planned Parenthood. It doesn't say Planned Parenthood is forbidden. It doesn't specifically mention Planned Parenthood um, sponsored clinics in Puerto Rico. And so the Democrats read that as saying Planned Parenthood uh, clinics couldn't get the money, and the Republicans say Planned Parenthood isn't mentioned in there. So both sides are grabbing onto these straws and saying this is why our our legislation is the more nonpartisan approach. But I, I think they just need to work this out. I think they have the right amount of money. I think there's a bipartisan compromise to be had, and and, and I think it's silly to be playing partisan games with, with these kinds of issues. And that's again why I wrote that article in Politico a few years ago called "Enter, Enter the Neutral Zone." I, I think the answer is is quite apparent here. Wasn't there a similar hiccup when they were setting up the Department of Homeland Security? There was a, I remember getting sidelined for a little while in a, a dispute over how unionization. unionization that's right. That's right. Yeah, and, and then I thought there was also a little, um, I thought the Senate Democrats were a little annoyed with Bush because initially he said, like, as Al was suggesting, absolutely no Department of Homeland Security, and then suddenly he embraced it with his idea. And so there, there, there are a bunch of uh, po political, um, uh, political quibbles there. So, um, I understand politics. I'm not naive about this stuff, uh, but I, I would like to see us get away from some of the partisan squabbles when it comes to disasters. I think we can we can have all sorts of partisan squabbles about all kinds of issues. And I'm happy to engage in them, but let, let's try and keep disasters out of it to the extent we can. Sure, uh, Todd. I think I saw your hand up. Hi, Toby. Uh, so I'm doing a little work in another context on about the interagency process. Uh, so I actually wanted to ask you about that in relation to this. I mean, is it uh, uh, yeah, at the, at the kind of 35,000 feet level, there's the question of exactly how much the federal government should be involved in these issues, et cetera. But at kind of the working level, there's the question of how well does it actually work? Uh, what it, and, and I guess my question would be, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, about how the government responds in that sense and the, at, the, at the kind of working level in the interagency? And would there be recommendations that you would make uh, to an incoming administration on, for how to improve that at all? Yeah. So. When I was on the Romney transition a couple of years ago, it didn't come to full fruition, but we did have uh, initial federal funding once he got the uh, nomination to start, start working on that. There was a team called the Black Swans team, which was looking at sorts of crises that could emerge that were unexpected. Um, and I would hope that both the Clinton and Trump transitions, which are for some ridiculous reason housed in the same building, way to go GSA, um, but I would hope that both of those transitions are looking at this black swan issue and, uh, and, and trying to anticipate what to do in case of an unexpected crisis. Uh, but you're right, a lot of it has to do with interagency working together. And I've got this one story uh, in, in the book where we put together this flu plan when I was in the Bush administration. And we went to brief the chief of staff, Andy Card, about this flu plan. And Fran Townsend, who is the director of Homeland Security uh, Council at the White House, um, is briefing Andy Card, sitting across the table from him. And she is flanked by Mike Levitt, who 
was the Secretary of HHS, and Mike Chertoff, who was the Secretary of Homeland Security. And she's giving this great flu plan. I worked hours and hours on it, and I thought it was a very smart strategic plan, blah, blah, blah. And, but Andy Carr didn't want to hear that. He just said, wait a minute, wait a minute, friend. Let's say there's a massive flu outbreak. Who should the president call? And again, surrounded by Mike Chertoff and Mike Levitt, she said, Mike. <laughs> and I thought that incident just encapsulated some of the difficulties. Who's in charge in, types of, in times of a crisis? If it's a, a, a pathogen caused by a terror attack, I guess it's more DHS. And if it's um, more a natural occurrence, I guess it's, it's HHS. But the, each agency brings different skills and resources to bear, and neither can afford to be ignored in times of a crisis. And I think uh, some of these things I was talking about earlier, like with um, uh, uh, drilling and making sure that you do uh, planning preparatory, uh, preparation scenarios, I think are very important so that the, the officials know who each other are before the crisis begins is very important. Um, and to the extent you can avoid interagency squabbles, I, mean, I think that's actually a good presidential role to step on these things and say, you know what? you guys need to, to work this out, or I'll put my finger on the scale and say it's really this agency's prerogative and not that agency's prerogative. Because you often find the federal government is at a loss for leadership in these instances. And that's why I thought uh, President Obama, with the Ebola crisis, went and create, um, made Ron Klain the Ebola czar. Uh, so they could have one person saying, OK, I'm going to sort through all these interagency issues and work through it. And Ron Klain um, is, uh, by all accounts, a very talented individual, but not a um, uh, not a health expert, not a public health expert, uh, but he knew the federal government, and that's why they brought him in. You know, I was really struck by the interagency aspect of the power grid chapter, right? I mean, that was an area that I used to practice in was, was, was energy law. And with, with a power grid failure, you're talking about just the White House, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the private North American Electric Reliability Commission, the state regulators, other federal agencies like the EPA. Um, I mean, it's just even just preparing for a black swan event against the power grid is sort of an unfathomable interagency process. That's why I thought it was a good thing when the Obama administration came into office that they actually did try to coordinate this inside of the White House. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out in, in the next administration because it seems like the job of energy czar began with Carol Brown or the former EPA administrator in the White House and then it went down to Heather Zeichel on the Domestic Policy Council and now it's gone sort of even further down the the, the food chain. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the next administration. I think I saw a question over here a minute ago. Was there a hand up over here? If not, uh, Kevin? Uh, here, we'll bring a microphone up. Well, um, can't wait to, wait to read the book. Thanks for citing me. Um, Thanks for writing. <laughs> the, uh, the issue of interagency coordination is something I got to look a little bit at in, in my past past life, um, they drew up this wonderful national response plan, I believe it's called the, the NRP, something of that ilk, where it was a very thick document that tried to parse out everybody's responsibilities in the event of these various occurrences. And then Katrina hit, and the plan didn't work so hot. So it was, well, let's go back to that, and let's keep thickening the document, rethinking the basic assignments. And it was a very good exercise to some degree, but been bedeviled persistently, as far as I could tell, by A, the sheer complexity, and B, the basic problem which your book hits on is, what really is a national disaster? I mean, 15 years ago, a cyber attack would not even enter our mind as a possibility, let alone something that we would call a disaster. And now, the vision of banks shutting down or 
stoplights going out, medical facilities suddenly going offline. Um, as, so as the, as the term disaster expands, the plan has to expand. The government response across agency has to expand, and naturally, the funding too. At least that's my perception. Yeah. So, so Kevin, your question reminds me of the uh, the great Mike Tyson, who once said that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that and that and that's the case with some of these disaster plans from the federal government. That is why you actually need to have scenario planning and actually game these things out. You can't just write a plan on a piece of paper because. It doesn't do much good, but but you're right about the the, the grid issue. Uh, that, that is something I, I do worry about, um, and and also this idea of what is a national disaster is something I, I talk about in the book. I mean, you, it gets back to your question, Adam, about why I chose what I chose. If there is a big pileup on 95 and 20 people die, it's a tragedy, but it's not a national disaster. It doesn't have the kind of ripple effect or or long-standing implications that some of the disasters I try and cover in the book. And so I'm looking at things that in some cases might happen locally, but have national implications, or some things like an economic collapse that really does affect every citizen, every man, woman, and children, and child in this country. And so I think those are the ones where the president needs to be involved. That's where the president has the most leverage, and that's where the people look to the leadership of, of the president. So I, I think it's a little hard to define exactly what a disaster is, but I, you know, I, I, I made a run of it in, in the book, and given your expertise, I'd love to hear your uh, response thoughts sometime over coffee about where 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 to draw the appropriate line. Sure. Uh, any other audience questions? I, I have one more question. I mean, one oh, in the back, but was there one in the back? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, in the Bush administration, uh, we created the Homeland Security Council, and the, the director of Homeland Security was Fran Townsend for a while. Uh, that person was really seen as the person, the go-to person in case of disaster. Now, the Bush administration, after the Bush administration, the Obama administration got rid of the Homeland Security Council as a separate, freestanding uh, uh, council. There, you know, there are. There were four councils in the White House, the Domestic Policy Council, National Economic Council, obviously National Security Council, which is the council that started them all. Um, and then Bush had the Homeland Security Council, which is now subsumed into the National Security Council. Uh, but when I was in the Bush administration, we talked about making the Homeland Security responsibilities part of national security. Um, there was a very clear sense that Steve Hadley, who was the National Security Advisor in the last years of the Bush administration, said, I don't want to be responsible for hurricanes. That's not my expertise. I mean, you know, this guy's a geopolitical strategy. He shouldn't really be worried about what, what FEMA does, like Mark was asking, um, in, in terms of some kind of hurricane at the Gulf. So uh, I think it differs with administrations. I think we obviously put a lot more thought and effort into it following 9-11. And I don't know if the next president will create a Homeland Security Council, but I, I think it's something worth considering. Um, I, I assume that in the absence of a Homeland Security Council, the, the most important official is probably the, the chief of staff that determines presidential level involvement, um, is the key communications person. But you know, the chief of staff is a tough job. You are with the president almost all the time. And uh, you know, I, I always say that the, the more senior official you are in government, the less work you can actually do because you're so overscheduled and you have to have people do the, the, the work for you to an extent. So uh, I, I guess right now I'd put it in the lap of the chief of staff. So in writing the book, researching the book, what was the biggest surprise? What was the biggest surprise you came across while you were sort of learning and then telling the story? 
from a macro level, yeah, sure. this, uh, th this sense that the federal government really wasn't involved in disasters and now is so involved in disasters. Now, obviously, I knew that on some kind of intellectual level, but I hadn't really seen the extent of it until I looked at, for example, that 1889 incident. Uh, but from a micro level, some of the things that really uh, surprised me were um, the Harrison $300 donation when um, he didn't give aid to the federal aid to the people of Johnstown that he gave a $300 personal donation, which I've calculated uh, that's about $7,500 in today's dollars. Um, Russ uh, can correct me if, I, if I'm a little wrong on that. But, but, right, but, but that, 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 that was my guesstimate. The, uh, the inflation calculators don't go back to 1889, so I wasn't sure. Right. Right, right. <laughs> All right, so anyway, that was my guess. So, you know, it's a significant out-of-pocket donation, but it's really the president giving a donation uh, instead of actually sending federal resources. So that one really jumped out at me more than anything, I'd say. And, and so then the Category Five, uh, the Category One through Five hurricane scale that came as a result of Nixon's query. Well, I'm now always going to refer to it as the Nixonian right. hurricane <laughs> category system. What's the uh, What's your next book going to be? Uh, I'm working on some ideas. It will include presidential history, but uh, I got to talk to my agent and publisher. So hopefully, a lot of people buy this book, and the publishers will be more interested in securing my next book. <laughs> <laughs> well, when the when the next book uh, does come out, we'll uh, be glad to have you back to talk about it then. I'll take you up on that. Uh, I do want to say before we break, um, we do have a couple other a couple other events coming up soon that I want to tell you about. Um, this series that we're having now, the the opening argument series, is itself sort of modeled on. A, uh, a series that Jack Goldsmith, a senior fellow here, and Ben Wittes um, pioneered a couple of years ago called Lawfare, a series of book interviews on national security and, and the law of war. And on September 28th, Ben Wittes will be interviewing Rosa Brooks, recently of the Pentagon, and her new book, How Everything Became War and the Military Became Everything, Tales from the Pentagon. It is a, I've already started into it, it's a fascinating book on, on everything from the laws of war to the interagency process the Obama administration has experienced. After that, a couple more events. On October 4th, here we'll, here in the in D.C., we'll have the Symposium on Patent Holdup Theory, a, uh, a project of the Hoover Institution's Working Group on Intellectual Property, Innovation, and Prosperity. Um, so for the, especially for the legally minded, uh, it'll be a good event. And then on October 13th, coincidentally, we'll have Tevi back, uh, Tevi will be joined by uh, Hoover Research Fellow Lonnie Chen, a veteran of the Romney campaigns. Tevi and Lonnie will be talking about how presidential campaign policies become presidential transition policies and then become presidential policy. On October 13th, obviously, it'll be a very timely subject, and that'll be the next event in this, uh, this series, Opening Arguments, Conversations on American Constitutionalism. So we hope you'll join us. But in the meantime, thank you for coming, and thank you very much, for Tevi, for writing this book. Thank and being you. Here.